Too smart for your trading app? Tired of brokers made for beginners? Then it's time you get serious. It's time you join Tasty Trade. The tools and tech you need for a tough market, plus low and capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more, all in one place. If you trade anywhere else, you're missing out. Join the club, genius. Visit TastyTrade.com. Tasty Trade Inc. is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA, NFA, and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Stocks trying to snap a multi-week losing streak despite Treasury yields surging to their highest level in decades. Futures right now are in the green. Dueling Fed heads putting investors in a tough spot. Why Wall Street may have to brace for even more jumbo hikes this year. The ESG backlash set to hit President Biden's veto pen, but the fight is still far from over. Former Deputy Treasury Secretary Sarah Bloom Raskin is here to weigh in. Plus, buying at the bottom. Why shares of Adani companies are bouncing back this morning. And then later on, major iPhone maker and contractor Foxconn makes a huge bet outside of China. It's Friday, March 3rd, 2023. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. Happy Friday. I'm Dominic Chu. in for Frank Holland today. Let's kick off the hour with a check on U.S. equity futures with the Dow trying to snap a four week losing streak. And right now, futures are indicating a modestly higher open. You can see here the Dow's implied higher by roughly 35 points. It's not red. It's still green. The S&P is implied higher by seven and a 30 point gain for the Nasdaq. So modest gains implied at the opening bell. Major action in treasuries this past week. Watching the 5, the 10, the 20, the 30-year yields, each of them hitting their highest levels since back in November. Right now, those yields are backing off ever so slightly. The 10-year note yield just at around 4%, that big figure. And again, the 2-year note yield, a huge, huge story here, trading at its highest level, going all the way back, you can see here, to 2007. 4.85% the last trade for the 2-year note yield. Also watching what's happening in energy prices. Oil creeping closer to 80 bucks for U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate or WTI crude prices. They currently sit at $78, the big figure, down about one quarter of 1%. Ice Brent crude futures, the world benchmark gauge, down a similar percentage amount, $84.55. Natural gas prices ticking just slightly higher, $2.81 there. Big move, though, in gasoline futures, though, hitting four-month highs right now. You can see our Bob, or this futures contract for gasoline, April expiry, is down about one half of one percent, though. Still, you can see that kind of move higher just over the course of the last couple of weeks here. So maybe we can expect to see those flow through to the pump for all of us drivers soon enough. And then in cryptocurrencies, watch what's happening with Bitcoin and Ether. We are still watching what's happening with that 23,000 level. We are now below that on Bitcoin prices, 22,377 and change. That's down roughly four and three quarters percent. Similar percentage move lower for Ether prices, $1,567.60 there. Let's get a quick check on the early action in Europe. Juliana Tattlebaum is in our London newsroom with the latest there. Good Friday morning, Juliana. 
Good Friday morning to you, Dom. Let me actually kick off with Asia, where we saw equities move higher in overnight trade as China's services sector grew at its fastest pace in six months, according to the latest PMI figures. As Beijing gears up for the National People's Congress this weekend, where the Communist Party is poised to tighten its grip on key institutions. As for the market moves, the Shanghai Composite in mainland China moved about 0.5 percent higher, the Hang Seng in Hong Kong about 0.7 percent, and the Nikkei 225 in Japan outperforming gaining about 1.6%. So overall, the positive momentum that you saw on Wall Street yesterday has carried over into Asia, as well as Europe. So here's a picture of how European equities are trading. We've got green across the board. The Swiss market has been teetering around the flat line throughout the course of the morning, but pretty decent gains elsewhere. FTSE MIB in Italy up more than 1%. We also had some fresh uh, final PMIs for the month of February for the Eurozone today. And what they told us is that the recovery in the services sector uh, continues, easing some concerns around a recession in the eurozone and at the same time boosting expectations that we could be in store for more rate hikes from the ecb dom all right juliana tannelbaum live in london with the latest there have a nice weekend let's get a check on this morning's top corporate stories pippa stevens is here with those good morning pippa good morning dom well starting here with a case of what looks to be a buying at the bottom shares in four adani group companies popping an overnight trade the embattled Indian conglomerate telling shareholders that U.S.-based investment firm GQG Partners has bought more than $1.8 billion worth of its stock in four of its family companies. Despite the overnight move, though, shares of each are still down sharply from their pre-crisis highs. Meantime, the Biden administration adding 28 more Chinese companies to a trade blacklist for allegedly violating sanctions tied to Russia and sharing tech related to nuclear and missile programs. Among the new firms on the blacklist, BGI Group Companies, BGI Research and BGI Tech Solutions. And major iPhone maker Foxconn reportedly plans to invest about $700 million on a new plant in India to ramp up local production. According to Bloomberg, the investment will be one of the company's single biggest outside of China to date and will be used to assemble iPhones as well as possibly parts for Foxconn's EV business. A lot of momentum behind EV, Dom. Everyone trying to get involved. Everyone is. It's a big business for sure. Pippa Stevens, we'll see you later on. Thank you very much. Back to the broader markets as investors search for clues on the direction of the Federal Reserve's rate hiking path. Federal Reserve Governor Christopher Waller providing fresh commentary on inflation, saying rates may have to go above that projected 5.1 to 5.4 range if the string of hot economic data persists. Now, Waller noting that recent figures showing a strong labor market, robust consumer demand and stubborn price pressures calls into question the extent of progress the central bank has made in its fight against inflation. His comments are contrary to Rafael Bostic at the Atlanta Fed, who yesterday advocated for a height pause, at least at some point later on this summer. So joining us now to discuss this is Jay Hatfield, InfraCap founder and chief investment officer. Jay, it's maybe not a surprise because each of these Fed speakers, Fed presidents, Fed governors is their own independent voice. But there's a little bit of, I guess, dissension ever so slightly in the way people view this. Is this a cause for concern? And where do you see that rate hike trajectory going? Good morning, Dom. Thanks for having me on the show. We're not surprised by Waller's hawkish commentary. Almost every um, Fed official has really started to signal that we're 
the SCP is likely to be 5.5%. So we'll have rate increases through June. And that's not surprising me because the Fed focuses on lagging indicators. Um, the worst is CPI-U. That's about 12 months behind, at least on shelter. They also focus on wages, which also tend to lag um, changes in goods prices. So we do expect the Fed to be hawkish, but as they're indicating, pause in the summer, which should set us up for a pretty major rally. So if that's the case, there's also been the the, the argument being made in in various camps about whether or not it's appropriate to pause. But then also the extent and and the degree with which you do raise rates. Do you see at least a couple of more smaller, so to speak, 25 basis point, one quarter percentage point hikes over the next couple of meetings before we hit into that summer season? We do. We see three more. We think the SCP was effectively at the top end being five and a quarter. We think now we'll go to five and a half as we have gotten what we think is unreliable data in the first quarter because you have seasonal issues and weather influences and the lags I already mentioned. But nevertheless, that's the data they're going off. So we do think we're going to get one more increase um, than was uh, implied by the last SCP. And we'll get that data later this month. But as we, as I indicated before, we think the economy can withstand those hikes and that inflation is dropping rapidly really because of housing and energy prices, which are the key drivers of high inflation. Jay, that, that's a controversial take to have. The reason why is there are still so many folks out there who believe that there is a, so to speak, second wave of inflation coming. What makes you feel confident that the signs that you're seeing, either in the economic data or the market data for things like commodity prices, makes you feel as though this really is the peak in inflation and that we are decelerating in a quicker pace? Well, it's important to study the 70s. We think the Fed has learned all the wrong lessons from the 70s. There's a notion that they um, paused and that caused high inflation. But what they're ignoring is there was a 200 percent, which is almost unimaginable, increase in oil prices in 79 And the other factor is there's a 5% bleed through of energy prices to core. So we think the combination of uh, about a 50% drop in energy prices, and I wouldn't ignore natural gas. Natural gas is down 80%. That will bleed through to core. Then you have housing, which is also dominant in CPI. So those are the two leading indicators. Instead of focusing on what the Fed does, the lagging indicators, CPI-U, Slagging. We have a, a different index, CB, CPI-R, that incorporates housing prices. So those are the two dominant factors, um, housing and energy. All right. Jay Hatfield at InfraCap, thank you very much, sir. Have a nice weekend. Thanks, Dom. Thanks right. for having me on. All right. When we come back on the show, China's kicking off its National People's Congress as President Xi looks to consolidate control over key sectors of his economy over there. We are live in Beijing with what it means for investors coming up. Plus, the ESG backlash set to hit President Biden's veto pen, but the fight is still far from over. Former Deputy Treasury Secretary Sarah Bloom Raskin is here to weigh in. We've got a very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this commercial break.
Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Now is the time to embrace a new wave of workers. Every day, your team grows younger, more digital, and more drawn to entirely new ways of working, which means you need flexible solutions to connect them where business gets done. T-Mobile for Business was born digital. With America's largest 5G network, we can make it easier to work together from virtually anywhere. Your team may be changing, but with the right tech, it can be more productive than ever before. Get started at tmobile.com slash now. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your big money movers, three stock stories of the morning. First up, we got shares of Zscaler, which are tumbling despite topping Wall Street's earnings and revenue expectations. The cybersecurity firm's billings growth only slightly edged analyst estimates. It's also projecting a 9% decline in billings for the current quarter. Now, the company is also announcing it plans to trim its global workforce by 3% by July and taking an 8 to $10 million charge to do so. Zscaler shares right now down about 12%. C3AI moving in the opposite direction, rallying on better than expected results for its third quarter as investor interest in, of course, emerging artificial intelligence boosts that stock. Now, to CEO Tom Siebel saying on Closing Bell Overtime just yesterday that he's seeing continued optimism for the company. You will recall that uh, I reported in uh, June, uh, July and August of last year that we were just seeing bracing headwinds out there in terms of companies kind of bearing down for a recession, slashing expenses, stopping all procurement, sales cycles moving sideways. And I would say that has really changed um, in the sense that companies are, I'd say they're really quite optimistic. Now, those C3 AI shares are, again, moving to the upside. It's also a mixed earnings picture for Victoria's Secret, beating on earnings, but missing on revenues. Now, the retailers closing its financial year with inventory levels down double digits, with its CEO saying the company is prudently positioned for 2023 despite a challenging environment. Victoria's Secret also announcing it's investing $36 million to repurchase roughly 900,000 shares of its own stock. Those shares down about 3.5% pre-market. Well, ahead on Worldwide Exchange, forget Brexit. Why some in the U.K. are coming down with a serious case of regret. Plus, a new list of global top cities that offer the best work-life balance. We've got your top trending stories ahead as well. Keep it right here. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. China is kicking off its 2023 National People's Congress as it looks to further consolidate President Xi's power and shift tact 
when it comes to regulating key areas of its economy. Our Eunice Yoon joins us now live from Beijing with what we can expect. Uh, Eunice, this is a situation where it's a furthering, the next chapter of this evolution for President Xi Jinping. Just how much more power can he get? Well, it looks as though he's going to at least try to uh, get more power. Um, In terms of uh, the National People's Congress, what we usually see is the leadership um, announced some of the key targets, the blueprint for the year, including on the economy. Uh, There's an expectation among investors that the GDP growth target is going to be set at around 5 to 6 percent, of course, with the hope that the economy continues to grow and recover after the zero COVID protocols were lifted. Um, Also, uh, in terms of Though what we're, what's going to be very important is for investors to watch is um, who is going to be part of Xi Jinping's um, economic and financial team. Of course, um, President Xi is expected to be renamed uh, president. But who's going to get the premier job? Um, who's going to get uh, some of those other key posts? So the outgoing team are people who are generally familiar um, in the West among a lot of international investors. For example, uh, Liu He, who was the one who was handling a lot of the trade negotiations with the United States. Uh, but the incoming team um, looks to be, or at least the expectation is, that they're going to be a lot of Xi protégés. In fact, uh, for example, the uh, vice premier is uh, supposed to be uh, one who uh, has um, not a whole lot of financial background. And then in terms of the central banker, he's also a top state bank official. So the expectation is that we're going to see much more state control. And in fact, the state media had flagged this, saying that there's going to be a, quote, reform plan, which is going to be far reaching, where state institutions are going to have a reshuffling of uh, the Communist Party exerting much more power. And by the Communist Party, a lot of people expect that means President Xi. So there isn't a whole lot of detail about this reform plan, but what we've heard so far is that it's going to affect the financial system, technology, private enterprise, and public and state security. So the difference there is that public security is the police, state security is uh, the intelligence uh, community. So we're starting to get a little bit of an indication that um, state control uh, is going to be much more empowered uh, because of the delegate list and the people who are not on it. So the internet bosses of uh, Tencent, Baidu, uh, NetEase, JD, of all of these bosses, not on the list, but those who are, there is one that's um, ex-paying, so that's one to watch that they've been added, but otherwise it's mainly state chip um, companies. Um, so a, a little bit of a, an indication there of uh, where things are headed. If, if, if you were to, to kind of forecast, and speculate's not the right word for this, if you were to try to anticipate what this actually means, for the business environment in China, there, there have been those who say that China is, is, is very hard to invest in right now. There's not a lot of clarity with regard to the government's view on things. It seems as though over the last several months, they've taken a slightly softer stance against big tech and financial technology companies there. But these moves make it seem as though they're going to just ramp up that kind of regulatory pressure again Do you believe the Chinese Communist Party gets it, that that maybe technology is part of their future and that these companies are probably going to be at the tip of their spear? Well, I think they absolutely believe that technology is going to be part of their future. They just want to be the ones that are in control of it. 
at least those are all the indications. Um, in terms of what you're talking about, yes, there have been a lot of mixed signals that we're getting out of the Chinese government. On the one hand, we see now the, the state media flagging that uh, we're going to see the Communist Party exerting more and more control over state institutions, which hasn't, is, which is, would be a reversal here, because um, in the past, a leadership has been trying to break that a little bit um, and have more collective um, decision-making. However, um, you know, just a couple of days ago, President Xi had also flagged that they welcome foreign investment. And there's definitely been a drive, especially on lo the local level, of uh, uh, different officials wanting international investment to come in. So, so it's, it's very difficult at this point to interpret. Uh, but uh, at, this, at, the, at the end of the day, you could um, uh, safely assume that, that international businesses are still interested. But exactly how they do it and, and survive it is a little bit up in the air right now. All right. The National People's Congress in the preview there from Eunice Yoon. Thank you very much, Eunice. Have a nice weekend. That's good. Let's get a check on this morning's other top headlines. NBC's Philip Benna is in New York with the latest. Hi, Philip. Hi, Dom. Good morning. Sentencing begins later this morning for Alec Murdoch after he was found guilty of murdering his wife and son. After just a few hours of deliberations, the jury convicted the disbarred South Carolina attorney on all four counts. He now faces up to life in prison. The Justice Department says that former President Trump can be sued over the events of January 6th. Attorneys for the DOJ said in a court filing that Mr. Trump does not have absolute immunity from lawsuits filed by police officers and members of Congress in connection with the events of that day. The brief did stop short of saying that the former president is liable for causing the riot. Mr. Trump faces lawsuits over the events of January 6th from two Capitol police officers as well as multiple members of Congress. Trump's lawyers argue that he was acting within the bounds of his official duties and had no intention to spark violence. The House Ethics Committee is opening up an investigation into embattled Congressman George Santos. Among other things, a subcommittee will determine if the New York Republican engaged in unlawful activity in his congressional campaign, violated conflict of interest laws, and engaged in sexual misconduct. His office tweeted that he is, quote, fully cooperating with the investigation. And finally, the best shot you will see all day beating the buzzer in dramatic fashion. For the Gophers. Cooper to battle for the win. Jameson battle with the step back, potentially bursting the bubble for Rutgers' tournament hopes. His dagger cap capped off the comeback for Minnesota. They beat the Scarlet Knights 75-74. to 74. So the madness of Marchdom is upon us. I, I, I have a feeling like Becky Quick is not going to be happy about talking about that later on this morning. <laughs> Philip Menon, mm. thank you very much for that. We'll see you soon. Straight All ahead right. on the show, Senate Republicans kicking the ESG backlash to a whole new level likely forcing the president's hand and veto pen as well. We'll speak with former Deputy Treasury Secretary Sarah Bloom Raskin on that issue coming up next. But first, we're watching shares of Salesforce. That stock just had its best day since 2020 following that blowout earnings report and also dividend boost. Shares this morning continuing to move higher, albeit just fractionally. Salesforce, $186.76 pre-market per share. We are back after this. Just about 5.28 a.m. Eastern time out here in the New York area. We are getting started, just getting started here on WEX. So here's what's on deck. Stocks are fighting to eke out a win as the Dow and the S&P look to snap multi-week losing streaks. 
Futures suggesting it may come down to the finish line in a photo finish this week. Citigroup joining the big bank job cut bandwagon reportedly targeting headcount in two divisions facing mounting headwinds. And the ESG fight moving from Wall Street to Pennsylvania Avenue as President Biden prepares to veto a new bill targeting environmentally conscious investing practices. Former Deputy Treasury Secretary Sarah Bloom Raskin is here to weigh in. It is Friday, March 3rd. We're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to the show. I'm Dominic Chewin for Frank Holland this morning. Let's pick up the half hour with a check on U.S. stock futures. They are modestly higher. And again, I mentioned the photo finish. We're going to try to see if we can snap some of those losing streaks. The S&P is implied higher by nine points. The Dow higher by 38 and the Nasdaq higher by roughly 33, 35 points. It's been a rocky week of trading with all three major indices set to eke out some gains, barring today's moves. Now, the Dow was looking to break a four week losing streak with the S&P set to snap a three week slide of its own. Now, in the bond market, yields are ticking lower. Not really been the case over the last couple of weeks here. The trend near term has been higher, but nonetheless, we are backing off some of those higher levels. You may recall that at one point yesterday, we were pushing up towards that 4.1 area for the 10 year benchmark Treasury note yield. We are currently now back down to just a hair above 4% on that big figure. The two year note yield is 4.86% as well, and the 30 year long bond, 3.94%. Now, The rapid rise in bond yields is also moving to mortgage rates, climbing back to 20-year highs at this point. The average rate on a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is now back above 7%. That's compared to roughly 4% the same time about a year ago. So you can see that big move higher as the Fed has kicked off that rate campaign. But still, that housing market is going to be a key focus with those rates. Amid that uptick, a number of housing names are getting hit hard. Look at D.R. Horton. Also, Lennar, Pulte Group, all down between 7 and 9 percent just over the course of the last month. So watch the home builders and, of course, the manufacturers that go along with housing. Also, let's check on oil prices as well. U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate or WTI crude prices currently still below 80, $77.84. That's off roughly one half of one percent. Ice Brent crude futures, the world benchmark gauge, $84.33. That's off 42 cents, roughly half a percent as well. Meanwhile, about a one and a half percent gain for natural gas prices, $2.80 per million British thermal units. Now, let's check on some of this morning's top stories as well. Pippa Stevens is here with those. Hi, Pippa. Good morning, Dom. Well, ARM is rejecting calls by the U.K. government for dual listing for its anticipated IPO, choosing to only list in the U.S., the SoftBank group owned by chip technology company announcing it would make the U.S. only move this year, calling it the best path forward for the company and stakeholders after holding talks with British government and financial regulatory officials for months. The U.K. had been working to keep its most prominent semiconductor company tied close to home, with arms saying it may consider a secondary listing there down the road. Citi is becoming the latest Wall Street bank to slash headcount. According to reports, the bank is cutting hundreds of jobs, including those in its investment banking and mortgage units. The reduction represents less than 1% of its total staff. If confirmed, the move follows peers Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, which have already cut thousands of jobs. And shares of Bumble are tumbling on word the company's CEO and investor Blackstone plan to sell shares. The company announcing the pair will make the move as part of a secondary offering, 
with Whitney Wolf Heard selling 1.75 million of the 12.5 million being offered. The remainder, Dom, will come from Blackstone. All right. Thank you very much, Pippa Stevens, for those stories there. Now, from Wall Street to Pennsylvania Avenue, the Republican lead for the ESG backlash is now set to hit President Biden's desk with his veto pen. This after the Senate voted this week to overturn a Labor Department rule that allows, permits fiduciary retirement fund managers to consider environmental, social and corporate governance factors or ESG in their investment making decisions. Now, two Democratic senators, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, also John Tester of Montana, are joining their Republican colleagues in supporting the measure and helping push it over the finish line. But despite the all but certain veto from President Biden, the fight is now far from over. Joining me now is Sarah Bloom Raskin, partner at Kaya, an advisory firm that provides climate policy advice to investors and corporations as well. She's also a distinguished professor at Duke University's law school and, of course, a former deputy treasury secretary, also hold, held positions with the Fed as well. So, Sarah, good morning to you. We enjoy talking to you and, you're in, and getting your insights because you've seen many different sides of our government and the way that it works with regard to finance and banking. In this case here, you've been on the record as being pro-climate in terms of evaluating it as a risk. Is it fair to say that you are pro-ESG as well? <laughs> it's probably not fair, Dom, to say that I'm pro-ESG, but it is important to know what's at stake here with these laws, which is really the freedom to invest. Um, so, you know, our markets in the U.S. are some of the deepest, most liquid markets. And what we have here um, uh, are some forced investment rules coming through the states, um, which are injecting these subjective limitations. And I'm, I'm seeing here um, these attacks, really, on sound investment practices, the sound investment practice of analyzing and responding to investment risk and opportunities. And the aim in this backlash is really to force investments into sectors that are preferred by politicians, um, like perhaps the fossil fuel industry. So um, I, I think that this that this, um, you know, this set of uh, uh, this, I guess, so-called ESG uh, backlash is really an attempt to interfere with our markets. OK, so so, Sarah, th there there is a very strong case to be made here that investment managers, whoever they are, and there's a plethora, a number of them out there, a slew of them. There's multitudes who all have perhaps different investing philosophies, different ways to create outperformance. There are those who would argue that you should take the restrictions away from investment managers so that they can find the best opportunities, regardless of where they are. And then investors themselves can choose to either put money with them and invest with them or not based upon their own beliefs. Is there a reason why the Labor Department has these rules in place and why Republican lawmakers want to put some other rules in place? Wouldn't it just be better to take the rules away and let people invest the way that they want to invest. Yes, and I think you've I think you've got it right. I mean, in the sense that it is really sound investment practice, good sound business practice to analyze and respond to investment risks, investment risks and opportunities wherever they arise, right? And so when you have and 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 you're looking at um, you know, the 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 uh 
the fiduciary uh, Department of Labor rules. But what we're seeing at the state level is really quite, uh, really quite um, restrictive because certain states are now putting in place these voting restrictions. And these voting restrictions are interfering with the ability of fiduciaries to take into account all the necessary risks and opportunities that they see coming their way. And I I think this is dangerous to be restricting fiduciaries in the way you see many of these state laws doing. There's also a question, Sarah, about whose role, whose responsibility, whose purview it is to even look at some of these things. If you take a look at the way investment managers do it, I can see the case being made that investment managers should be able to make their own analysis and choose to invest how they see fit and then let their performance dictate how people judge them. At the same time, the government, you've been on the Treasury side, so the administrative executive branch side of things. You've also seen it from the central bank side of things. There have been pushes in this administration And by, in some ways, the central bank, the Fed, with regard to things like climate policy, can you take us through what your belief is as to why the government needs to be involved in this, either from the central bank standpoint or the executive branch standpoint? And why not just leave it to Congress? (laughs) Right. Well, it really is a role. It's, it's really the role of the fiduciary, right? So it's it's a fiduciary. It's the principle, really, of corporate governance, where you have fiduciaries, and their role their role is to maximize returns, maximize returns for their shareholders, and that's essentially what they do, and that's what they need to be free to do. And once politicians come in and start limiting the ability, and we see this at the state level, where um, many states are now coming in and saying to the fiduciaries that they can't look at particular risks. I mean, that's dangerous. That is dangerous to shareholders. That's dangerous to our free market. It's really dangerous to our to our our ability to maximize returns, to take into account risks where you see them and to incorporate that and incorporate those risks into the decision making that a fiduciary needs to make in order to maximize returns for shareholders. Uh, and Sarah, uh, I also want to, to, to get, your th- get your thoughts about this. The last time we spoke with you, it was before that you you were kicking off a, at least a campaign on your behalf to nominate you to a senior post within the Fed that would supervise our banking system. Now, m- many people will say that you were derailed in that process because of your views on climate and whether the Fed should be a proponent of climate change and policies that would target it. Do you feel as though in, in, in retrospect that that was still the right way to go about doing things? And what exactly would the next chapter be for you with regard to how you take those views? OK, that's a whole different whole different area, but very interesting. Climate related financial risk is developing as we speak. It is a real and present uh, financial danger. And climate related financial risk is something um, as as you know, as we're talking about today, fiduciaries need to take into account when they evaluate their portfolios. And it's something that um, is certainly behind what you're seeing today regarding this, um, you know, these forced investment rules, forced investment. That is what's that is what's problematic here. And um, uh, uh, you see it and you're, you're seeing we're seeing it develop. And I think it's really quite, quite dangerous. All right. Sarah Bloom Raskin on the push for ESG investing restrictions or taking them away. 
Uh, it's always great to hear your thoughts. We hope you'll join us again, Sarah. We'll see you soon. Very good. Thanks. Have a nice weekend. Well, coming up on the show, your morning's big money movers and shares of one EV charging company falling after failing to electrify investors with their quarterly results. But first, as we head out to break, some of your top trending stories this morning. Copenhagen taking the title as the world's number one city for work-life balance and pay as well. Amsterdam and New York City taking second and third place, respectively, in the new money nerd wallet ranking of 25 of the biggest cities in the globe based upon cost of living, average salary, and job opportunities. Bottom line is it's a good work-life balance in those cities. You know, you can call it a sign of regret. The latest YouGov poll finding that 53% of Brits say the UK was wrong to leave the European Union nearly seven years and four prime ministers ago. The poll also finding that 45% of the population thought Brexit had made their daily life worse versus 11% who said they thought it made it better. And just in time for season three, Ted Lasso is partnering with Jenny's Splendid Ice Creams to release a new limited edition flavor called Biscuits with the Boss. Fans of the show know what that is. The ice cream features a salty sweet cream base with crumbled shortbread cookies mixed in. It's going to cost you $12 for a pint. It's expensive, but I would try it because I like shortbread cookies. Worldwide Exchange is back after this. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for a bonus set of big money movers. Costco beating earnings expectations but posting lower than expected revenues with same-store sales and e-commerce both falling below consensus analyst predictions. The wholesale retailer CFO citing cooling demand for big-ticket discretionary items as a key driver for weakness in e-commerce sales, saying online sales for appliances and computers fell by 15% in their latest quarter. Those shares for Costco down 2.5%. Marvell shares also losing steam after the chip company met earnings expectations but offered a weaker forecast due to inventory correction pressures. Marvell's CEO saying he expects changes in product mix to impact guidance for the first quarter, but that the headwinds will subside in 2024 as inventory levels more normalize. Marvell shares down 8% right now. And then shares of ChargePoint Holdings losing power after the company reported a wider-than-expected quarterly loss and disappointing sales. ChargePoint missing its own quarterly guidance range due to persistent supply chain challenges with gross profit margins flat compared to the prior year. But the company's CEO saying they are continuing down the path towards profitability. ChargePoint shares off 10% in the pre-market trade. Well, sticking with the future of energy, storage seeing a boom in demand on the heels of the Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA. Last year saw record installations, and this year shows no signs of demand letting up. Pippa Stevens joins us now with more on the stocks set to benefit from that boom in energy storage. Pippa. Well, Dom, there is a lot of momentum behind grid-scale energy storage, and that's because it's the key to a greener grid. Solar and wind are intermittent power sources. You need somewhere to store energy that can be used if the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing. 2022 saw record amounts of large-scale battery storage deployed, with installations growing 29% compared to 2021, according to S&P Global Market Intelligence. And many more projects are slated to come online this year. A number of factors are fueling the boom, including federal tax incentives, grid reliability concerns, as well as competitive pricing for renewables and storage. 
And this is just the beginning. At Tesla's Investor Day this week, Elon Musk said, quote, the thing that's needed at very large scale that is not currently present is a vast amount of battery energy storage. Now, in terms of who benefits, there are a host of companies involved at different stages, including battery makers Panasonic and LG, as well as Fluence and Fryer. You've also got utilities like Nextera and AES that are using batteries. Companies like Schneider and ABB among the names, Dom, that are offering energy management systems. So so the, the, the scale that we're talking about, right, that's utility scale storage. It's not like something I can keep in my garage. So what about residential storage? Every time I see somebody pitching me at a local mall or or anything about putting solar panels up on my house, I keep thinking to myself, how am I going to get all that power? How does that factor in my demand as a resident? Yeah, so we were talking about utility scale, but residential storage is also seeing a lot of momentum here. And actually, Sunrun CEO Mary Powell told me that she thinks 2023 is going to be the year of storage. And that's because, again, there are credits in the IRA that makes it more economical for consumers to add storage to a rooftop solar system. Additionally, out in California, we've seen key changes to their net energy metering policy, which once again makes it more favorable if you have a storage battery so you can tap into that when demand on the grid is very high. But while residential is important, you know, if we really want to meet the decarbonization goals of the Biden administration, we really do need to see more grid scale storage. All right. I I think about that recent Tesla story about them offering a possible overnight package for charging at 30 bucks a month because they can actually store the power and then use it overnight when energy demand is low. Anyway, there's all kinds of dynamics. Pippa Stevens, thank you very much for that. Still ahead on the show, another choppy week of trading amid growing fears of further aggressive Fed action to tame inflation. Charles Schwab's Jeff Blindtop lays out the moves to make with your money amid that volatility. We will be right back after this break. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your WEX wrap-up. Six stories you may have missed as we close in on the 6 a.m. Eastern time hour. Fed Governor Christopher Waller saying a string of hot economic data may force the central bank to raise rates higher than its projected 5.1 to 5.4 percent range. Shares of four Adani Group companies popping after the embattled Indian conglomerate told shareholders U.S.-based investment firm GQG Partners has bought more than $1.8 billion worth of its stock. Major iPhone supplier Foxconn reportedly planning to invest about $700 million in a new plant in India to ramp up local production, one of its largest to date outside of China. Zoom abruptly firing President Greg Toom without cause after less than nine months on the roll. Toom joined Zoom back in June to oversee go-to-market strategy, revenue efforts, and the office of the global CIO. Walgreens announcing it will not dispense abortion pills in 20 states where Republican attorneys general who have told the pharmacy chain those transactions could be in violation of state laws. And Walmart CEO Doug McMillan is planning to stay in the role for at least three more years as the company continues to look for a successor. That's according to a report. Among those in consideration, current head of Sam's Club, Catherine McClay. Now, gearing up for the trading day ahead, the February ISM services index is out at 10 a.m. Eastern time. We also hear from a gaggle of Fed officials today, including Dallas Fed President Lori Logan, also Atlanta Fed President Rafael Bostic, who made headlines earlier this week. The Dow is on track to snap a four-week losing streak, and the S&P a three-week downturn. That's despite the spike in bond yield, with the 10-year note back above 4%, and the two-year yield 
just off highs that we haven't seen since 2007. Jeff Kleintop is chief global investment strategist at Charles Schwab. Uh, Jeff, this is an interesting time to be investing because of the dynamic that we are seeing in rates. One could argue that equity markets have held up tremendously well, given the spike that we've seen in just the last couple of weeks. Is your feeling like the worst is over for stocks? Well, no. Uh, I, I think that we're in for an extended period of volatility. I know some of that volatility has been on the upside lately. But if you look over the last eight or nine months, we've seen 5% or more moves almost every month to the up or the downside. I think at least over the last eight months, I think half of those to the upside, half to the downside. That may continue because while we are seeing uh, upside economic surprises in the U.S., we're seeing them in every G7 nation over the past month, ranging from leading indicators like the PMI and the ISM surveys we'll get today to lagging ones like jobs. Remember, in the U.S., we got a blowout jobs number, but in Canada, it was 10 times what economists had forecast. In the U.K., it was seven times. So everywhere, central bankers are marching rates higher. And what I think this means is a stronger wave of growth, of economic growth, and maybe that's good for earnings, but it probably means waves of inflation, not a linear downtrend in the path for CPI in any of these nations. And that can create continued worries about when the end of, uh, when we're going to hit those terminal rates and that kind of volatility on the outlook for central bank policy, I think, is going to, going to be the main driver of volatility in the months ahead. Jeff, I, I just want to bring your attention right now to some some kind of headlines that we're seeing right now coming out of analysts over at Bank of America with their fund flows report. They're now saying that U.S. Treasuries are seeing the strongest start to the year since 2004 with roughly $29.9 billion worth of inflows on a year-to-date basis, the 10th weekly inflow in a row for investment-grade bonds, $7.2 billion, its longest streak since October of 21. There's a huge focus on treasuries and those corporate bonds seemed as most, seen as most safe. Do you see that trend continuing? One of the risks to that trend is that uh, the Bank of Japan meets next week. And we're, I think, on the cusp of starting to see some policy changes there. Remember, for over a decade, Bank of Japan policy has enabled Japan to be an important source of investment funding, including for treasuries. It's been very easy for investors to borrow cheaply in yen and then purchase investments in other countries offering a higher yield. And I, I think we're on the cusp of a change there. We've got a new head of the Bank of Japan, Mr. Ueda, set to be the new head in April. It's possible that we're going to see a shift in policy as inflation in Japan has soared. This morning, we, we get the uh, data from uh, the uh, J- Japanese Trade uh, Association showing that we're asking, they're asking for wage growth of 45 to 5%. These are huge numbers. Seeing inflation getting embedded in, in Japan suggests we're on the cusp of a change in policy. That could mean an unwinding of the yen carry trade. Maybe that could put some more pressure to the upside on treasuries. All right. And Jeff, we've just, just got about 30 seconds left. From an equity standpoint, do you feel as though there are certain sectors that are now in favor in the next, say, six to 12 months? I'd say stick with quality across sectors, uh, strong cash, cash, stocks with strong cash flow, low price to cash flow ratios have been outperforming over the past year on the downside and the upside. I think that's where you want to stick to. You can find those across all sectors, but it's an important characteristic when you'll find uh, actually more prevalent in some of the value parts of the market and non-U.S. indices have a lot more pr- low price to cash flow stocks than U.S. stocks do. All right. Finding value internationally. Jeff Kleintop and Charles Schwab, thank you very much. Have a nice weekend, sir. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Markets right now indicating a slightly higher open. Squawk Fox picks up the market coverage coming up next. Have a nice weekend. We'll see you on Monday.
You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Too smart for your trading app? Tired of brokers made for beginners? Then it's time you get serious. It's time you join Tasty Trade, the tools and tech you need for a tough market, plus low and capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more, all in one place. If you trade anywhere else, you're missing out. Join the club, genius. Visit TastyTrade.com. Tasty Trade Inc. is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA, NFA, and SIPC.